Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I'm going to be honest with you, but only because I like you and you seem real dedicated about your project and your penguin suit and all with the charts and the timer. But seriously... If you really want to learn about sex, then you're going to have to get yourself a female partner. I'm Greta Johnson. I'm Trisha Bobita. And this is the Nerdette Podcast. This week, an interview with Thomas Mayer. He's a journalist who wrote a book about Virginia Johnson and Bill Masters called Masters of Sex. And we think Virginia Johnson qualifies as a great lady nerd of history. Re, 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 re. Too many re's? I think just enough. (laughs) We'll also hear from some Alaskan Halloween nerds. They'll share their spooky wedding story with us. And homework from novelist Ann Patchett. We'll also plant the seeds for a zombie debate you're going to need to call us about. We're expecting some fervored voicemails on this one. Oh, good. But first, it's our next great lady nerd of history. So in the 1950s, early 1960s, Virginia Johnson and William Masters at Washington University in St. Louis were doing research that no one else had ever done. They were studying sex. And they weren't just like thinking about these things theoretically. This was observing people in sexual acts, which was pretty novel at the time. Virginia Johnson was integral in this work, but Dr. Masters was the only one with a degree. I'll let author Thomas Mayer, who wrote the biography of Masters and Johnson, explain. She was a 32-year-old woman on her second divorce with two children going back to school at Washington University in St. Louis when she met Dr. Masters. She got a job at the medical school as a secretary. She literally was out in the hallway filling out insurance forms when she started there. So yeah, Masters and Johnson seem to really have complemented each other, and they ended up actually both having a byline in their first publication in 1966 called Human Sexual Response. This book changed everything. It made them famous, and as we learned in our conversation with Thomas Mayer, the story of how they got there is as interesting as what it did. Thomas Mayer himself first came across the story of Masters and Johnson when he was asked almost 20 years ago to write an article to mark the retirement of Dr. Masters. It was a short little article that I wrote, but uh, I got off the phone and I was thinking, a man and a woman studying love and sex who uh, become these international famous figures uh, who were not married, then get married. They're married for 20 years and then they get divorced and nobody ever understands what happened. What was it about their lives? I decided to try to go back and see if I could convince Virginia Johnson to cooperate. By that point, Masters had died. But his family and friends provided an unpublished memoir of his life. And so between Virginia's cooperation and the interviews that I did with Master's friends and family, I was able to do this book. The first conversation that I had with her was over four hours. And we went from talking about their work 
to, in the very first conversation, she told me about how she lost her virginity as a teenager. She was a farm girl, and she talked about a boy. She wouldn't even give me his name initially. She described him as the boy with fiery red hair. <laughs> this was the boy that everybody thought she would marry. It was predicted in their high school yearbook. Just hearing that you were able to talk with her for four hours straight when she's 80 years old and she's just recalling her life and her research, I think gives a pretty good sense that you were in for a ride once she opened up to have that sort of stamina in just the first phone call. Virginia Johnson had been interviewed hundreds of times in her life. They had a degree of fame that very few people realized, and they had that for 25, 30 years. I think one of the things that I found most interesting about the book is going back through and realizing she never did really study in a formal setting. She got this job with masters and the rest is history. She got called doctor by journalists who were mistaken much of her life, it sounds like. But what was her qualification for this job? How did she get this job? What was interesting about her was that she came along at just the right moment. Masters realized that he needed a female partner. His initial studies were with prostitutes. And he had done that for more than a year. One of the uh, prostitutes, who was also a graduate student, told Masters that he really needed to get a female partner. I'm going to be honest with you, but only because I like you and you seem real dedicated about your project and your penguin suit and all with the charts and the timer. But seriously, if you really want to learn about sex, then you're going to have to get yourself a female partner. What came as a revelation to Masters, which is amazing considering that he's a OBGYN by trade, but Virginia Johnson had a remarkable ability to understand human nature. The way in which Masters was a kind of a hard science guy concerned about the anatomy and the physiology. It was Virginia Johnson who convinced people, first of all, to volunteer for this study, but it was also her native genius. It was Virginia who came up with their therapy that wound up becoming uh, remarkably successful, became the basis for the modern sex clinics, the Masters and Johnson therapy that became renowned throughout the world. What was that initial pitch like? I think that's one of the fun parts of both the show and the book. I interviewed, I'd say, about 15 to 20 doctors who were young pups, if you will, back in the day working for Masters. Masters was the top doctor's at Washington University in the medical school. And a lot of the doctors were able to remember what it was like seeing Virginia in the, in the cafeteria at the medical school, convincing graduate students and nurses, and sometimes faculty wives and, and such, to become part of the study, that it was all part of something for science. And, you know, these were generally younger people. And the whole idea sounds incredibly radical, but apparently... Virginia's charisma, her understanding about human nature, and the way in which she posed the proposition, if you will, they were able to get a number of different volunteers. Eventually, over 10 years, they had about 370 women who were part of the study. I think 312 men. He said I could only talk about it with women who are willing to volunteer. Volunteer for... For what? This study is about sex. It's things that we've always suspected, but never had proven scientifically. It's a whole new world that we're opening up. 
groundbreaking. Very exciting for women, especially. It will probably be the biggest change to women's lives since the right to vote. Really? You know, it, she was remarkably successful, and she had the skills that masters lacked. So she became his princess. Literally, that's what she said. That because his dream was to try to win a Nobel Prize for this study. He was a very ambitious guy, and she literally was making his dreams come true. If someone asked me even today to help participate in a study like this, I would be really sketched out. So it's really interesting to think about how even 60 years ago almost, Virginia Johnson was able to get these women to be willing to participate. Her bedside manner must have just been phenomenal. You know, I think back then there was not as much awareness of women's rights, but also, you know, at a medical school these days, every medical school has an ethics board and probably rule against anything like this. The fact that it was done with anonymity, that it was done with the approval of the chancellor of the school and with the head of the department at Washington University, but really nobody else. And certainly the way their relationship evolved, Masters and Johnson, would probably not pass an ethics board examination today either in a workplace. Right, absolutely. Very early on, within about the first year of working together, Bill Masters essentially required Virginia to have sex with him. He actually used a Freudian term, transference. That, in other words, they were watching all of this sexual activity, part of their study. And it was almost like Frankenstein's lab where, you you know, those old movies where you see everybody's hair is shooting <laughs> out of their scalp. There's so much sexual kinetic energy. You need to implement a system uh, that ensures this kind of transference doesn't occur. It didn't occur. So you won't object to uh, devising a, a system that avoids any doctor-patient conflict. I won't object, but why don't you just come out and say whatever it is you're trying to say? Two of us should undertake the research ourselves. Have sex with our patients. Bill, that would be transference. We should undertake the research with each other. I've considered this carefully, and uh, I realized it's the best way to ensure the longevity of the project. We get the benefit of interpreting the data firsthand, plus it uh, deflects any inappropriate projection away from our patients, keeps it just between us. It was very, very difficult for Virginia because essentially the boss was asking her to have sex with him, no matter how he dressed it up. She loved the work by that point. Their relationship developed from there to become a much more equal relationship as much as what would constitute sexual harassment, clearly, by requiring Virginia to have sex with him. You know, Masters also wound up giving her a great degree of credit for their work. You know, the first book, they shared a byline. She didn't have a degree. He was like a top doctor in his field. The idea that he gave her equal billing in all their work was in its own profound way an expression of his regard, I dare say his love for her, even though they were both remarkably bad at expressing their love for one another. They were fascinated by one another, and both in their own way made the other one's dream 
the things we do for science. And the things we do for love, right? I mean, it's such an interesting story that way that it does still involve both, even though they tried so carefully to look at sex in a really scientific way. Well, you know, my friends laugh at me when I say, oh, it's not as much about sex as it is about love. Because, of course, the study is a sex study. But, you know, the essence of their relationship, I'm so glad that they're played by Michael Sheen and Lizzie Kaplan in the Showtime series because I think they're both terrific actors. And I think they're both also able to really fully bring to life the full-bodied aspect of both Virginia and Bill. They gave as good as they got. Well... Good housekeeping courses tell you that women marry for love. What they think is love. But I think that women often confuse love with physical attraction. Sex? Yes. Women often think that sex and love are the same thing, but they don't have to be. They don't even have to go together. Sex can be perfectly good on its own, whereas love is... I don't think I've ever heard a woman express such an opinion. It's not a theory I trot out at dinner parties. You're a doctor. I'm guessing you're not easily flustered. They were really smart, really ambitious people. Their fascination for one another was rooted in the fact that one's skills was the other one's weaknesses. Virginia was much more comfortable in communicating with human beings. She was also the one who forced masters to come to grips with what they were finding. When they began in the 50s, Freud was the predominant philosopher about sex uh, in America. That was a very male-dominated view of sexuality. Masters was hoping that their book would say that female sexual response was the same as males that basically give equality in the bedroom here. Basically, that's what their first book says. But when you actually look at the evidence in their book, their evidence showed that women had a much greater capacity for sex than men, that women were multi-orgasmic, that the second and third orgasm among the people that they studied was more intense than the initial one. If a male had a, a single firecracker, the female response could be a veritable fireworks display. And this was the evidence that they were finding, that Freud was wrong when he delineated between a vaginal and a literal orgasm. These were completely dispelled by the scientific clinical evidence that Masters and Johnson provided. And it woke up a lot of people in the medical field. It also emboldened a lot of feminist writing in the late 60s and the early 70s in which the power of female sexuality, you know, was essentially discovered by Masters and Johnson. And Virginia's role in all of this was to kind of push Bill to look at what they were finding and say, come to grips with it. It certainly wasn't something that would have been in the listing for this administrative assistant or secretarial position to say, show up for this job, but by the way, you're going to have to have lived some life so that you can tell this doctor when he's getting it wrong and when he's heading in the right direction when it comes to female sexuality. 
I think Lizzie Kaplan, you're right, plays that so well in the show. And I just wonder what it's been like to see them bring these people to life. Oh, it's fascinating. I've always felt that Lizzie Kaplan is Virginia Johnson. <laughs> the same eyes as Virginia Johnson. Michael Sheen is one of the great actors on the planet. Bill Masters was a kind of a tough nut to figure out. He had a guy who had been beaten up by his father in his childhood was really driven to try to prove himself. So that's interesting because I recently read an interview with Lizzie Kaplan where she draws a parallel between herself and Virginia and then Michael and Bill, also in terms of the extent of Michael's acting expertise and professionalism, whereas she is a little younger, hasn't done as much as he has. I thought that was kind of an interesting parallel to draw. It's a very insightful comment by Lizzie. But I also think she gives herself a little short shrift this whole production was kind of built around the very deep belief by the producers that she was a terrific actress. Certainly, Michelle Ashford, the executive producer, the showrunner of the show, and Sarah Timberman, who really put the show together, they always felt very strongly that Lizzie Kaplan is an actress of tremendous depth, that she could have the comedic aspect that's needed for a lot of the scenes, particularly, you know, when you're trying to convince people to be part of a sex study and that kind of charisma that Virginia had. Why would a woman fake an orgasm? To get a man to climax quickly. Usually so the woman could get back to whatever it is she'd rather be doing. Thanks to Thomas Mayer for talking with us. It was announced last week that Showtime is calling for a second season of Masters of Sex, I recommend that you pick up the book as well. Don't think of it as spoilers for the TV show. Think of it as bonus features. Supplementary material. So I have to say, sometimes when it comes to sex on TV, I'm kind of a prude. But this show really is tasteful in how it portrays the science of studying sex, and I highly recommend it. So Trisha, as we were talking about what to do for Halloween... It came to my attention that I actually know a couple who lived up in Alaska who got married on Halloween. They must really love Halloween. They really do. But there's a little more to it. Just listen, Tricia. A friend of ours, uh, a lawyer up there, was building this great big log cabin. It was unfinished. It had heat and a plywood floor, and it had empty honey buckets, which was a critical factor. What is a honey bucket? So a honey bucket is the Alaskan form of plumbing. It's a bucket that you go to the bathroom in. So essentially he's saying, you know, it's as if you had like a whole bunch of porta potties set up before an event. It was like the perfect scenario for them, which is pretty hilarious. You know, these guys, they tried to keep it low cost. They had it kind of potluck style, so everybody brought food. They filled a 30-gallon garbage can with Everclear and mixed fruit punch and had oranges <laughs> floating around in it. It sounds like a pretty wild time. Was everyone in a costume? Were the bride and groom in a costume? You know, I asked them that, and they asked me to guess what they were dressed up as. And I guessed Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. I figured that would be, you know. Yeah, that'd be fun. Classic. Right? Turns out I was wrong. No, no. I was the groom, and she was the uh, bride. bride. actually had seven brides. Um, only one of them got married, though. And then our photographer was a gay samurai, and the officiat was um, Corey Flintoff, who was like Abe Lincoln. Wait, 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 wait. Corey Flintoff, like NPR correspondent Corey Flintoff, 
was Abe Lincoln? Yes, he was dressed as Abe Lincoln and he presided over the wedding. He is now the Moscow correspondent for NPR News. Go figure. And yeah, this weird mixture of people is pretty much quintessentially Alaskan, if you ask me. You'd be sitting on one side of you talking to your local drug dealer who was a taxi cab driver. On the other side might be sitting a Rhodes Scholar who was there as a doctor who was paying off his medical school funny. It was this it was this eclectic mix of people and you would have these wide ranging discussions. Thirty gallons of Everclear is enough for any party, I would assume. Right. Are they still together and dressing up every Halloween? They are. This Halloween will be their thirty first anniversary and they say they're thinking about doing American Gothic zombies, which is a pretty good choice, I'd say. I would say so. Cocktails before homework? Yes. Our resident booze nerd, Rebecca Polson, wanted to make a Masters of Sex-themed cocktail, but I made her promise that she wouldn't just make a sex on the beach. A little too on the nose, I thought. (laughs) This week, we're making the Blood and Sand, a classic cocktail invented in 1922 that can maybe be thought of as a much more grown-up precursor to the sex on the beach. We use a smoky blended scotch, and we use cherry brandy instead of cranberry juice and schnapps. The result is boozy, fruity, and just a little bit sweet. First, you're going to add three-quarter ounces of fresh squeezed orange juice to your mixing glass. The stuff in the carton is really tempting, but it doesn't have the brightness to cut through all the sweetness of the other ingredients that are in this drink, so definitely juice your own. And then you're going to add three quarters of an ounce of cherry hearing, which is a brandy-based cherry liqueur that's kind of the equivalent of Grand Marnier. And then you add three quarters ounce of sweet vermouth and an ounce and a half of blended scotch. And really, it can be anything that's not too assertive. You don't want anything crazy here. You just shake it over ice, strain it into a coupe glass, and garnish with a flamed orange twist. Cheers. Thanks to our booze nerd, Rebecca Polson. You can find the full recipe on nerdatpodcast.com. Okay, so maybe it's because it's almost Halloween, or maybe it's because The Walking Dead is back and a lot of us are very excited about that show. But over lunch, we've been debating zombies kind of a lot. What about zombies? So my rules for zombies, I guess I'm a zombie liberal, you could say. <laughs> I'm okay with fast zombies. My editor, Tim Akamoff, here at WBEZ, says that is blasphemy. There cannot be fast zombies. So that got us debating what are the rules of zombies and who created them? So do they have to have certain IQ levels or maybe they can't exceed a certain IQ, that kind of thing? Right. How dumb do they have to be? How slow do they have to be? Do they have to eat brains? These are the big questions we're asking over Chipotle. (laughs) Awesome. And in true nerd fashion, Tim Akamoff has been doing some research on the origin story of zombies and his friend Adam Gallardo has been down this rabbit hole before. So we asked him for just a teaser of what the history of zombies in literature is. Everything kind of derives from that of the living dead because someone somewhere made a mistake. They were originally were going to call it something else, and George Romero decided to change the name of the movie to Night of the Living Dead at the last moment. And whoever put together the new title card left off the copyright information. And given what copyright law was in the early 60s, that meant that it just went right into public domain. And so anyone who wanted to make a derivative work could do so immediately. And no one had done zombies like Romero did them in the movie. They weren't undead flesh eaters. So that was all him. But thanks to this clerical error, we all get to enjoy The Walking Dead today. Okay, but where's the homework? So yes, call us, tell us what your rules for zombies are. Fast, slow, brains, 312-600-5638. Awesome. 
So your other homework assignment this week comes from novelist Anne Patchett, who I love. She's one of those authors who, regardless of what she writes about, I know I'm going to love her book. And she's actually coming out with a new nonfiction book next week. It's called This is the Story of a Happy Marriage. And this is the homework that she'd like to give our listeners. My big dream in life, always, my fantasy for so many years has always been that at some point I would become a good Buddhist and that I would go away to an ashram. I would go away and meditate and I would learn how to how to be still and how to be a Buddhist and that it was going to be this great improvement of my life. And it never happens. Um, I travel too much. I never have time. I feel uncomfortable about the whole thing. I look at catalogs for Kripalu and the Insight Meditation Center the way other people look at the Neiman Marcus catalog. (laughs) I fold down the pages and I circle conferences that I wish I could go to and I never go. So this last summer, I just, after reading lots and lots of books and thinking about it all the time, I just thought, I'm going to do this at home. I am going to do a course of home study. And I downloaded um, a lot of lecture series uh, by Thich Nhat Hong and Sharon Salzberg and Jack Cornfield and all the people whose lectures I wanted to hear if I could go and see them. And just made a decision that I would listen to those lectures when I was driving around, when I was going to the grocery store, I would listen to Pema Chodron, and that I would come home and meditate every day, Um, and that I wouldn't wait until I could go to a special place and have somebody show me how to do it. And it's made a huge difference in my life. Uh, It's really helped me understand things about my life. And I realized that you can read about something forever. It's kind of like the difference between reading books about how to swim and swimming. Hmm. And all these years I've been reading swimming manuals. (laughs) And now I'm swimming, uh, which just means I sit down for 20 minutes a day and I meditate. And that would be the thing that I would wish for people. That's it for today. Thanks again to Thomas Mayer author of Masters of Sex. And Anne Padgett for the homework. Her new book, This is the Story of a Happy Marriage, comes out next week. Also thanks to our Halloween nerds, Tom and Tori Foote. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary, nerds. And of course, thanks to our cocktail contributor, Rebecca Polson. And thanks to you for listening on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Throw some stars if you're feeling generous. BJ Lederman did not compose our theme. You're listening to Poddington Bear. You also heard Vibe Ace by Kevin McLeod from the Free Music Archive. Do your homework. Do your homework. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.